Welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I am the DJ, and with me today I have the Professor. How's it going? Oh, about as well as it can be. You're enjoying the uh, the drama that's been going on in the last few days? Yeah, let's just not talk about the American election at all. <laughs> hey, it's That's going to sh- be way too controversial. <laughs> Oh, but hey, 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 it's all fun and games until someone gets hurt. Yeah. Oh, but uh, there have been some crazy events going on besides uh, besides the election. I mean, uh, what was it the other day? A uh, couple of ge- couple of games have been um, delayed as well. Cyberpunk 2077 again? Hey, um, it ain't so. <laughs> uh, when have we not heard that line before? One day it'll come out. One day. <laughs> uh, Did you do anything for Halloween? Nah, nah, I didn't do much. Nah, I'm not, the thought the thought did cross my mind of doing something, but I decided not to. Now, to be clear, we're not stupid, but our last episode will come out after Halloween because of the uh, our recording dates. So this episode is going to come out the week after, and it's going to make us look like we're really behind. <laughs> Well, no. that's that's the joys of living upside down. Didn't do much, but um, had a bit of a get together with my friends. You know, it's a very American thing. Yeah. But I'm not going to uh, deny an excuse to make chocolate spiders. Do you know? You do know what those are, right, DJ? Uh, candy, uh, c- candy. Kinda. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 the, the only thing that reminds me of spiders are those um. Coca-Cola spiders and Pepsi spiders and all those drinks. No, you're un-Australian, mate. (laughs) No, chocolate spiders. You get, you know those deep-fried noodles that you put on salads? Yeah. You get them and you mix them with uh, melted chocolate and peanut butter. Okay, that'd be fun. That'd be really fun. It's worth it. I mean, they're not very good for you, but they're delicious. (laughs) Uh, But at least it's it's more worthwhile than... than, uh... The first topic, which is uh, games being delisted. Yeah, yeah, you still got to work on your segways. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you got a story about a place where dead games live on. Well, no, they go there to die. Ah, a place where dead games live on would be Blue Maximus Flashpoint, which <laughs> is a a project uh, by a guy I used to play games with who rigged up this thing. It's basically a offline flash player, and it, there's a version that you can download with like 500 gigs of Flash games. They included a couple of other protocols towards the end as well. But um, yeah, absolutely insane pro- program that they did. Go give them props for, for, making, for thinking of an idea like this one. Yeah, well, in this case, the um, this is where games go to die. This is delistedgames.com. It's a website I just found out about this week, which is a new site specifically catering to games that are shutting down. And I know a, a couple of different um, people have tried to do that. I've actually included, included a link to uh, Ross Scott's uh, Dead Games News. Ross Scott, you might know better as the guy behind the Free Man's Mind series. Well... This one's been going on for a bit longer than that, but um, I only just picked up on it recently. They So they catalog games that are shutting down, games that are being taken off servers, uh, off stores. Uh, so one of their most recent articles is the Sega 60th anniversary, where they released games for less than a week and then entirely remove them. So you can't ever play them again. Uh, there's one there about um, the game Friday the 13th, which is having their dedicated servers shut down. And a, a final patch, which is nice that there will be a final patch to free the game and basically make it playable in the future. Wait, Friday the 13th, the game is shutting down? Ah yeah. man, that was a fun game. Yeah, except for that ridiculous um, cutscene at the beginning of every match. That guy, uh, I don't remember which character it is, but the one who screams during the cutscene. <laughs> like, the um, Jason comes out of the bushes and stabs someone, and then this guy just, you know, completely open mouth sort of scream, but looks completely ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see what you where you're coming from with that one. Yeah, so <laughs> <The> scream. <laughs> he looks like he wants to eat something. 
<laughs> uh, you're including the um the timestamp there. <laughs> yeah, so the game is uh going to continue to be for sale and you can continue to play peer-to-peer, which is better than some other games that I've seen shut down recently. Um there's also Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor, which uh has online features which aren't really necessary because it's a single player game, but it is going to shut down and there will be a couple of achievements you cannot get. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so um, it's unfortunate that they uh, that games are shutting down, but I think this is a great product or a great service. Being able to have a list, it's basically a historical list of what we've lost. I get the whole archiving the games and whatnot, but yeah... Th- like for example, Shadow Mordor re- losing all these like online achievements and stuff. That kind of defeats the purpose of like getting the game in the first place. Yeah, if you're an achievement hunter, then you're going to miss out now. Same things really bugged me about Left 4 Dead 2 that there was a Christmas event one year and you cannot get that achievement anymore. But um, it is nice to see that they are releasing final bug fixes. Here's here's another thing I I do have to wonder though. Does this um this website? Do you reckon this will classify uh, most of these games? Like okay, even though this game was not popular on sale, it has a cult following, and you can visit the uh, delisted games to check out um the cult fo- the cult following of these games. Um, there's not really anywhere to, like, there's a comment section, but, um, it's, it's not really where you'd find the community for a game. You'd still go to their particular websites. You reckon this will be the new norm? That game shut down? Yeah. Oh, well, because yeah. <laughs> more and more games have online features, even when they don't need them. And that's just the, um, the way the industry is going at the moment. Yeah. But it, it does also mean that there, this is, uh something that's going to happen to every game from now on. You're going to lose access to features that in the games that, you know, you might not care about them, but someone does. Yeah. And they might not add much to the gameplay, but it is still sad to see them being taken out. And what's going to be interesting with these uh, games shut that games being delisted and stuff would be the amount of money that comes, comes through those games will be pretty minimal. Like, uh, yeah. like loot boxes, for example, would be pretty much like, ah, oh, we don't get much money from the loot boxes in these games, so we're delisting them now. Yeah, they're going to mostly delist games that aren't making them any money. Or in the case of uh, sports games, you'll delist the game that came out last year so you can sell your next game, which is same bugs, same engine, uh, <laughs> just change the names of the characters. And unskippable ads. Unskippable ads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can't buy the older sports games anymore. I'm surprised um, IGN and all these games companies have not seen this website. Yeah, I haven't, you know, I'm kind of surprised this is the first I'm hearing of it. Is it big, the delisted community? It's big enough. There's um, a decent number of people who actually, you know, there's been multiple attempts to catalog games that are being shut down. So there's obviously interest for it. And um, particularly Ross Scott is a, you know, he tends to have a lot of projects that he'd like to work on. But uh, one of the ones that he's been pushing for years now is that he's against games as a service, which are games that will also be particularly affected by uh, the service shutting down. So he's against um, games as a service. He's against microtransactions. He's against the servers being shut down, and he thinks that the Windows UI needs to be better. Oh, <laughs> uh, Mike, um, Ross Scott, he's the guy behind um, Accursed Farms, isn't he? Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm... I said, the uh, Freeman's Mind. Yeah, because I was looking at the other um, other vi- other video, and I was like, oh, okay, he, I don't know he made that, made that channel, but okay. He also, like, back in the day, looked surprisingly like, uh, like Gordon Freeman. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. With that, if you take the long hair out, yeah. Yeah, back in the day, he had short hair. He <laughs> first revealed it like near the end of the um, Freeman's Mind series. He finally said, "You know, um, I'm going to do a face reveal. Here's why I haven't done it before because people think I look like Gordon Freeman." But yeah, I I think Ross is um he's got a really good community and. So he has uh, on YouTube a bit under 300,000 subscribers. Uh, but I think he, um, you know, he could really lead a movement about this. So with these delisted games, though, how long do they last? 
What's their lifespan like? Anything from, you know, a few months to a few years to never technically getting released. Uh, Dead Rising was going to get a MOBA, but the MOBA was cancelled when uh, the the publishers, uh, 4A, I think, they went bankrupt and ended up selling off most of their assets to uh, Deep Silver. Uh, you know, I did actually just say that um, earlier, Ross's Dead Game News was dead, but it looks like it is actually still around he's still doing it but um maybe not uh not on the dead game news channel maybe just on his main channel yeah hey currently when a game is released with uh, online services and all of that there's uh the game developers don't like releasing their source code or releasing a server executable to allow the game to be run by fans so when a game dies it really dies there's a lot of the time there's no way to bring the game back. Oh, unless you get the source code. I mean, like... Yeah, but you can't get uh, the source code unless oh. some hackers decide to really embarrass you and release your source code <laughs> the same week that your game comes out. Watch Dogs Legion. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Oh, that was absolutely a funny story. I'm like, why did you... Oh, my God. From I think I get- they did it to embarrass them because um, I think I saw that they a while back they were making, uh, they made an ultimatum that they would release it if Ubisoft doesn't do something. Yeah, yeah, and um, all of a sudden, like, Ubisoft said, nah, screw you, and then yeah. you went, nah, you know what, screw you too. Oh, man. How did they... Oh. I'm not sure what's more embarrassing, this or the um, Half-Life source code leak. <laughs> I think th- I think this is more embarrassing. I mean, Watch Dogs Legion. It was so it was hyped to be this big game, and then all of a sudden, once w- once you get news of this like coming out, it just it's embarrassing. Yeah, but um, the Half Life source code came out a month or so before the game. Well, Half Life Two came out before a month or so before the game came out, and they had to go like it basically showed that the game was not ready. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so okay, this is I- a complete game, a complete engine that they've been using for years now being released. The other was a complete, look, you're bloody hopeless. <laughs> but, you know, they, they took it back and they spent another uh, almost a year working on Half-Life 2 and came out with something amazing. Hmm. Um, as a game developer, when you see um, sites like these, um, like delisted, um, delisted, do you reckon it's a good sign that uh, game developing is um, is growing as a no, whole? No, I, I don't think this has anything to do with um, game developing. I think this is entirely on fans. Fans play a game and the game gets shut down and they want to keep playing the game. So they, you know, they make sites like this. Oh, I know. As but a game then you... developer, I'd like to make Ooh. sure any of my games um, keep working when I, you know, if I ever can't continue to maintain the game. But um, that's not always an option. I think a lot of the case here in small indie games are more likely to release their source code. And of course, today's going to be the day the internet cuts out. First, there's the construction, then the internet cutting (laughs) out. Oh, of course. No, wait, was that yesterday? (laughs) They said they were going to do maintenance on my internet line sometime this week. But anyway, let's hope that doesn't happen again. So small games are more likely to release their source code. The um, I think there's it's the same thing between developers and open source advocates. Sorry, am I still here? Yeah, yeah, still here. I'm just okay. uh, yeah. I, I I I agree with you there. Yeah. With the whole okay. with, 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 I agree with you there. I agree with you on the fact that the whole source codes and um, indie games um lasting forever. Even uh, although the internet could be a bit of a fickle thing at the time. It's the same. Anything, uh, you know, things last forever on the internet. Not entirely true. If the internet cares enough to preserve something, it will last forever. Hmm. But a lot of stuff does get lost on the internet. And games that shut down without releasing the source code or a server exe are really kind of taking away the chance for the, the game to be preserved. There's no way a developer can preserve a game if they aren't... Um, sorry, there's no way a fan can reserve a game if they don't have access to source code. Yeah. So ultimately, in the end, it, it comes it comes down to the fandoms and how how much they could uh, keep the game going and going and going. Yeah. 
So sometimes a game gets reverse engineered. Sometimes the source code leaks or is released officially. Um, and fans will try to preserve a game that they enjoy. Yeah. But, you know, the publishers don't want us preserving the games for some reason, which is why when a game shuts down, it's damn near impossible to get access to the source. I think so it comes... Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I think yeah. it comes down to um, copy... It comes down to copyright and royalties and fair use yeah. and all those. So I, it's a, it's the legal side of things that they're worried about. I think it is. I think that has a, a big impact on why a game... Well, why source code doesn't release. Yeah. And speaking of uh, very, very greedy publishers, uh, DC co- has revealed... Uh, a new line of middle gr- middle school graphic novels. This is going to be very, very interesting. Uh, so 2001, DC will be expanding the successful middle grade graphic novels. What year? Sorry? Middle school. <laughs> mi- middle grade. No. Middle what year is this going to happen? 2021. You said 2001. Oh, right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you missed that by a, a little bit, didn't you? <laughs> Okay, let me say it again. 2021. Ah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, um, they'll be release they'll be releasing uh, new titles featuring Superman, Green Arrow, and John Constantine, the lead long-standing lead of horror title Hellblazer. And some of these titles include Metropolis Grove, The Mystery of the Meanest Teacher, a, John Const- a Johnny Constantine graphic novel, and Green Arrow Stranded, which uh, build on a catalog. Is Johnny Constantine going to be Constantine but for kids? Uh, I hope not. Because Constantine has quite a bit of adult content, doesn't it? Yep. <laughs> but in this one, I'm looking at the covers, and... It looks like John Constantine is like your average uh, average school kid with a Doctor Who like back um, quote uh, coat. <laughs> well, that's what they're um, they're targeting. So yeah. So uh, for example, Metropolis Grove story is the big city is full of Superman sightings, but here in Metropolis Grove, each kid in this suburb knows he's not real, except newcomer Sonia Patel, who convinces her friends Duncan and Alex to believe. When the trio discovers a mysterious cave full of super memorabilia, they can't help to help it to themselves, and they set off a school year full of dreams and adventures, and a lot, more than few opportunities for a newfound friendship to test its limits. And when they finally figure out the residents of the cave is Bizarro, things get even more out of control. Remind me, who is Bizarro? Uh, Bizarro is basically uh, a bastardized version of of Superman. Right, so we've got a fanboy. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, yeah. And then yeah. we've got uh, the Johnny Constantine one, where Johnny Constantine is a 13-year-old uh, magician who has to flee England after pissing off her hostile spirits <laughs> and moves to Salem, Massachusetts, where his homeroom teacher is possibly a witch. Oh. The, uh, I like how, um, say, uh, fortunately, John is able to find, uh, find one kindred spirit at school who we can form an alliance, uh, another misfit named Anna. So they, so the Anna is recruited to uncover the truth of the teacher and expose the meanest teacher's real identity to the world. And uh, Green Arrow is stranded, which is basically after this plane crash on a deserted planet, a 13-year-old Oliver Queen must learn the skills he needs to survive and to protect his injured father. Wait, what? His injured father? Okay. Is that it's... not a thing in, like, the main Green Arrow canon? In the main Green Arrow canon, I think he's the sole survivor. Okay. So it's Hatchet, but more DC. Uh-huh. I'd rather go and reread Hatchet. <laughs> so, um, Ollie always ha- hated the idea of hunting, but his dad insisted they go on this trip with his business partner. And when Ollie f- fails to take the perfect shot, the teasing starts and he wonders if his dad will ever be proud of him again. Oh, go- oh come on. Is this like Titan A? Uh, not Titan A. Um, that Will Smith movie. After Earth. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> this is <Yes>. After Earth. <laughs> yes. My God. <laughs> the difference is, since they're doing it in comic format, they don't have to deal with Jaden Smith's terrible acting. <laughs> 
Oh, and Will Smith just talking. You have to do it, son. You have to take it, take it, son. You're like, oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, I like that they're trying to um, do this to uh, feed the kids, like, some good material. But really, storybooks about fanboys and t- just teachers, uh, secrets about your teachers. And- I know this is targeted at 12-year-olds, but... I'm not really seeing anything that appealing here. Yeah, <laughs> even it, even when I was 12, I don't think I would have read these stories. What was I reading when I was 12? I was reading like X-Men comics, like and some uh, and and the odd um and the odd Archie comic. But this this is just like this just feels a bit too print PC. Although I like how in um, one of the in, in um. In Metropolis Grove, it's uh, the sign saying like, "Yes, this will be full of drama and adventure." Wait, what drama adventure? This isn't Stand by Me, you know. <laughs> what the the point with the point with these comics normally is supposed to be like, oh, there has there has to be like this um grand um moral of the story kind of thing. But for these comics, they don't really they don't really say any message at all. Well, except for Oliver McQueen, it is basically saying. Yes, you have to survive your, survive on your own and listen to your dad at the same time. And the art style for these comics, I mean, they're not that appealing. No, it looks very, you know, by numbers, here's a story for 12-year-olds, sort of. Yeah. I don't it, know, maybe it, it's been a long time since I was a 12-year-old. Not as long as some people, but... <laughs> You know, I maybe maybe this is actually what's appealing to twelve-year-olds these days. Yeah, I, I I just think the arts. I just think it's it well, feels, the art style feels, for uh, Stranded looks alright. Yeah, the art style for Stranded looks alright, but it's just the other two, like Constantine and Metropolis Grove. It feels like Metropolis what? Grove looks a bit like um, Captain Underpants. Really, I was thinking more like um, Peanuts. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, they're also saying here, this is to build on a catalog featuring a number of acclaimed titles into, including Green Lantern Legacy, The Oracle Code, and, oh, no, not Gotham High. <laughs> 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 oh, no, not Gotham High. Please, not Gotham High. <laughs> is this going to be like Batman and Joker in high school? Oh, oh, you, you, have you, oh no, I hope not. You heard of Gotham High, right? The no, I haven't. Is. Gotham High. Ah, oh, it's it's a strip. It was a stupid idea. I don't know why they picked that idea in the first place. Gotham High. Here we go. So after being kicked out of uh, of his boarding school, sixteen year old Bruce Wayne returns to Gotham City and finds that nothing is as he left it. Uh, so he visits the Gotham High School with a dangerous flare aided by class clown Jack Napier. When a kidnapping rattles the school, Bruce seeks out. Who is Jack in like DC canon? Jack in DC canon for um is Joker. Okay, so yeah, it is Batman and Joker in high school. Yep. <laughs> At least it's not going like really cheesy and just de-aging them. <laughs> but gee, isn't it a funny coincidence that literally everyone in Gotham went to the same high school? Gotham, <laughs> the big city. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, in the middle of a crime fighting spree between like uh, Batman, uh, B- Batman and Superman? Superman goes like, "Gee, hey, I know you. You went to my high school, didn't you?" And Batman goes, "Huh, small world, huh?" <laughs> as long as they don't do some dumb, Joker became Joker because Batman bullied him. Ah. <laughs> uh... But yeah, with the with these DC comics for middle schoolers, I I could see the appeal, like with the art styles and whatnot. But would I want to would would I would I, uh, I want to read them over and over again? Like just would, would I would they would they read it over and over again? I doubt it. It's up to the reader in the end. Yeah, I guess. Um, you know, I guess we're uh, we're not twelve anymore, so yeah. maybe we just don't see what's appealing about this. Nah, stranded like. Maybe Stranded would be interesting to me if, uh, but it sounds like they're going more for the people drama than the survival drama. Yeah, I think it's the same case with all the other, um, with with all the other stories. It's more of the people drama that they're looking into. Yeah, like you know, even um, 
Lord of the Flies has a good combo of survival drama and people drama. Sure, it's a like it's a story about people being horrible, but it has the survival drama in it as well. The question would be though, how how much of that drama will be taken to its logical conclusion in in these books though? Like, are they going to expand it to a to a whole new to a whole to various levels, or are they going to keep it to a very simplistic form of view? Because probably it, simple. Because the, the, even though it's it, I. I I mean, simple is one thing, though, but then you have to teach the kids, like, okay, the world is a very, very complicated place. Yeah, but kids aren't always ready to have the very, very complicated stuff. So, you know, kids, the best kids' um, stories manage to distill the complicated parts of life and tell a, a story that, you know, can go deep but isn't tied up in being like in being too complicated for the kids to understand and uh speaking of uh complicated uh we've got our next story is about uh man's best friend and it's complicated history in terms of evolution eh eh so, uh, no no we're not your segues no they need to be better <laughs> <coughs> So uh, this Watch one. What's with just... the doggies? <laughs> so there's a study of uh, dog DNA has shown that uh, man's best friend is the oldest of of all. So the analysis have revealed that dog domestication can be traced back to eleven thousand years to the end of the last ice age. Wow! So people didn't have dogs during the ice age. Like, how did they? You know, what do they do to have fun? You know, you can't go and play play with your dog. What are you gonna do? I think they did something else. But uh, one of the mammoths to extinction. Yep. (laughs) So uh, one of the co-authors, Dr. Pontus Gogland, who is the group leader of Ancient Genomics Laboratory at London's Crick Institute, uh, said dogs are really unique in being this quite strange. If you think about it, when all the people was was still hunting, well, still hunter gatherers, they domesticate where what is really a wild carnival. Wolves are pretty frightening in many parts of the world. The question of why did people do that? How did they come about? That's what we're ultimately interested in. Yeah, what's interesting is that there are other studies where they took wild dogs and domesticated them, you know, bred them for domestication. And it only took something like 40 years to get what would be considered a domesticated dog. So it looks like once the process started, it would have been pretty quick. Maybe not 40 years quick because the breeding wasn't as selective, but, you know, 100 years maybe. Yeah. Uh, They're saying here, uh, to some extent, the dog dog genetic uh, patents mirror human ones because people took their animal companions with them when they moved. Um, There are also some important differences. So one example is early European dogs were initially diverse. Appearing to originate from two different distinct populations, one Near Eastern dogs and another Siberian dogs. But at some point, perhaps after the onset of the Bronze Age, a single dog lineage spread widely, uh, widely and replaced all other dog populations on the continent. Okay, so as soon as they were, um, as soon as they were domesticated, they outcompeted the wild dogs. Probably because the humans were killing the wild dogs, so they didn't get bitten. Yeah. Although um, one of the other authors was saying that uh, if we look back more than four or five thousand years ago, we could see that Europe was a very diverse place where when it came to dogs. Although European dogs we come to see to come to see today is a very extraordinary array of shapes and forms. Genetically, they derived from only a very narrow subset of the diversity that used to exist. Okay. So basically, it's um, we're seeing evolution. Uh, evolution um going going around with the dogs as well like you know how with we had like uh, neanderthals then the then the hominids like we've seen that when in a very different way with dogs as well like we got the wolves and the dogs and we see it getting branched out to various yeah. other species and whatnot and chihuahuas yeah oh yeah chihuahuas <laughs> how did that happen oh oh the so breeds like the uh chihuahuas uh, they retain the genetic traces of uh, ancient indigenous dog from that region, and that okay. region was uh, includes Mexico and Southern Africa. So the results of this study suggest that all dogs derived from a single extinct wolf population, or perhaps a very few closely related ones. If there were, 
if there was multiple domestication events around the world, uh, these other lineages did not contribute much DNA to later dogs. Hmm. That's interesting that um, if everything came from one particular uh, pack and then was spread across the world and probably interbreeded with local wild dogs, uh, it, you know, if every, uh, every domesticated dog could be tracked back to this one pack, that's really interesting. Yeah. The uh, study for this will be uh, included into the show notes, by the way. So but for anyone that wants to look into the data more closely. And uh, Scotland also said that dog history has uh, has been so dynamic that you can't really count on it still being to readily read in their DNA. We really don't know that the fascinate that's the fascinating thing about it. Actually, yeah, um, that's a thought I've just had. Uh, so they say that the dogs were domesticated eleven thousand years ago. Yeah, but dingoes were brought across with the Aboriginal uh, immigrants to Australia. So, you know, 40,000 years ago or 50,000, whatever the number is these days, when the Aboriginal people first came to Australia and, you know, diverged from Southeast Asians, uh, they brought dogs with them, which became dingoes. So I wonder, uh, do dingoes not count as domesticated or is this a case of, um, hmm, I'm not sure how to interpret that then. Well, they're saying, I'm looking at the dingo article here and they're saying it's closely related to the New Guinea singing dogs. Yeah. Their lineage uh, split early from their, uh, split, their lineage split early from the lineage that uh, led to, the, to today's domestic dogs. And they can be traced from the Malay archipelago to Asia. Okay. And uh, a recent gen- uh, recent study shows that the lineage of those dingoes found today uh, split from the lineage of the New Guinea singing dog and south- southeastern dingo 6,300 BC, followed by a split between the New Guinea singing dog and the southern Southeast Asian do- southeastern dingo lineage 5,800 BC. Uh, try saying the New Guinea singing dog three times. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, study proposes that the two dingo m- m- Migrations occurred when sea levels are lower and Australia and New Guinea formed one landmass no, uh, named Sahul that existed between 6,500 to 8,000 years ago. Okay, so dingoes haven't been here that long compared to Aboriginal people. Interesting. Well, I suppose that, uh, you know, that explains that. Yeah. In fact, the article that we've linked here even includes the uh, New Guinea singing dog. Yeah, okay. So it does say, um, yeah, it does actually say that, you know, the eastern dogs derived from uh, the New Guinea singing dog with some interbreeding with dogs from Europe and the Russian steppe. Interesting. It does point out, it does uh, create an interesting idea that what other evolutions of dogs are we going to see in the near future? I'd like to see uh, dogs brought back to a more sort of wild state because a lot of dog breeds are so, um, so modified that they have tons of issues so uh pugs can't breathe properly because their snouts are so short yeah um german shepherds so the the problem specifically tends to derive to show dogs working dogs tend to be healthier but uh the show breed of german shepherds is actually uh, commonly has hip issues but there is a um a another breed of german shepherd that has less hip issues because it isn't you know um bred for that particular body shape so i'd like to see less show breeds more healthy breeds i don't know what sort of useful task you could further breed dogs into performing though they're already pretty specialized in the roles that they fit feel which also begs the question are we going to see more hybrids yeah I think um, one of the big pushes recently that I've seen is a push to more uh, dog adoption rather than buying from breeders, which um, tends to be a mixed breed because, you know, it's brought in from a a stray dog or uh, some sort of mutt rather than a specific single breed. And it also does beg, also begs the question um, whether dogs can survive with the changing climates as well. I mean, there's no, I mean, no doubt about it. Our, our climate is changing rapidly. Yeah, I don't think that'll be an issue. I think so. There's desert dogs like the dingo. Yeah. There's snowy dogs like the husky. 
So maybe particular breeds will become rarer. Uh, I'm actually a little bit astounded whenever I see a husky in Australia because I have no idea how that dog can be comfortable with that much fur. <laughs> but um, I, interesting, you mentioned that because uh, I had a friend of mine. Uh, he 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 talked about getting a husky, and he says like you gotta get in. in, in you gotta get two huskies because they're very social animals and i said to them so it's like getting a roommate huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah and huskies are also very um active yeah so they're good for sled teams beagles are also active as hell man <laughs> yeah and beagles have good noses which is why they're uh, specifically picked for drug sniffers are they though i mean bloodhounds must i, I yeah. thought bloodhounds well, are much more better sniffers if you ever get sniffed at the airport, it's going to be a beagle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. But I thought bloodhounds were much more potent, but okay. Huh, Maybe uh, beagles are a better combination of trainability and sniffability. Maybe bloodhounds aren't particularly good at, you know, following orders or alerting on particular scents. Yeah, makes sense. Can you imagine a hybrid of those two? And that thing would sniff for days. <laughs> Like, that would probably be the dog equivalent of the Smelloscope from Futurama. <laughs> now, if only dogs can talk. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Anyways, uh, so Professor, what game have you been playing? I'm still playing Metro Exodus. You're having fun with that game, aren't you? Yeah, but um, I have had a couple of crashes. Well, more than a couple, I suppose. <laughs> but um, the one really bloody annoying one, I've had it crash twice where it has corrupted my save file. And because of the structure of the save files, your save that keeps track of your position in the level, your items, your ammo stays fine. But the save file that counts your difficulty level gets corrupted. So I've had it happen twice now where I play on the hardest possible difficulty and it resets me back to normal. And I to fix it, the I did try modifying the files by hand, but the best uh, solution I found is to create a new uh, a new save file with the settings you want, then copy over the uh, sort of the level saves, but not the difficulty save, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, it's annoying. It It's a great game, but it is the buggiest game in the series, I think. Just curiously with uh, Metro, so... I was watching a bit video recently about us, another person doing a review of the game. Did you enjoy the uh, strip club levels? <laughs> so there's a, a strip club scene in Metro Last Light, which I think actually um, you get a moral point if you don't go into the strip club. <laughs> I think because, but um, then there's also in Exodus, there's this, a character called the Baron who is a slaver and his um, gang has all kinds of different slaves. And, you know, I'm not going to say I feel guilty about killing him. <laughs> he seems like a bad guy. <laughs> but yes, those are features in the game and they are, um, they're there, they're optional, but they are there. <laughs> so uh, how many... But why would you go? go into the strip club in Exodus and cheat on your wife, DJ? You're married in Exodus. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> maybe because uh, maybe because I'm extra lonely. <laughs> so, uh, how many nerdy beanies would you give this game out of? Um, even with the bug, because last time you gave it a four point five out of five. Yeah, I feel like I should drop it down a bit. Maybe, um, maybe you know, a four point three because the crashes are driving me nuts and it feels you know the game as a whole is incredible the crashes are a pain <laughs> but oh. yeah so um i've pulled up a, a walkthrough and yes 
getting a private show in the strip club is, uh, if not a negative moral point, you don't get the moral point. Uh, the other thing that um, I seem to be missing a lot in uh, Metro Exodus is the diary entries. You can find diaries for um, each um, each level has a ton of diaries, which you can find basically notebooks left by previous visitors to the area. I'm missing a lot of them and the um, the postcards as well. Nice, nice. But yeah, the um, so how is Shotgun Farmers? Uh- Shotgun Farmers is is fun. It's uh, I, I played it earlier on and um, I didn't have a chance to expand it on, but now now I played played more of it. It's a fun game. I mean, you got the flamethrowers, you got the um, grenade launchers, you get you get some um, assault rifles as well, and they're all and they're all named after different vegetables. Like your grenade launcher is a tomato launcher. Your um your it's is it M eight. Your M8 uh, machine gun is M- M8 Bean, and uh, you get the grenades, which uh, one is a pineapple. Terrible puns. Sounds like <laughs> just the game for me. <laughs> uh, but it, it has its moments. It, it has some great moments. Like you can, uh, you can, you can slap a cow. Um, you can slap, when you slap a purple cow, it, you, it gives you like a mol- it's a Molotov cocktail. Although, uh, in a second, what's the what? Here we go. So you got the shovel. You've got the shotgun. You've got the axe. You got the carrot launcher, which is the rocket launcher. The P volver, which is basically a revolver. Sniper aspar- sniper asparagus. <laughs> Grommato launcher. What the? Oh, you gotta be kidding me! Oh, uh, we still got Craig. Oh, okay, good. I think oh. we're still going. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, we, you got the chili farmer. Um, for chili? No, not chili farmer. Chili flamethrower. M6 bean. Water. A uh, water. Uh, water melge. What's a melg- MG? Strawberry and Double Cob. But yeah, there's some, there some really insane weapon names in this game. The downside to this game is there's not much, not many people playing this game, but uh, it's pretty popular on um, console series, though, which is interesting. Okay, yeah, I've noticed um, a lot of games tend to have more players on console than PC. I wonder if it's because there's less choice on console. I think it's because of the um, ease of control. Like with the sh- with the mouse. You're a controller the, player. Uh, kinda, but I'm not not that good with controllers ra- okay, rather than good. PC. Yeah. Mouse and keyboard, you <laughs> master race. <laughs> uh, um, I would give this game a three out of five because it, it has potential, but it just it just needs more players. But yeah. Hmm. It's simple and it's fun. Uh, it can be addictive, but it just needs more people to play it. But yeah, yeah. It also <laughs> depends on which which um region you play it under. So I played on the Australia region, so there's not many people there. So oh, that's the other big issue. Yeah, we'll be right back with a short commercial break. And now to our uh, shout-outs. On the uh, 31st of October 2020, Charles Gordon, producer of Field of, Field of Dreams, Die Hard, and Waterworld, World, passes away. Uh, Charles Gordon, produ- producer of Field of Dreams, Die Hard, and Waterworld, World, passed away on the 31st of October at uh, 73. He also directed the Hitman movies, which were so good nobody remembers them. <laughs> Well, seriously, do you remember them? All I remember there was a there was going to be a, there was an announcement for another Hitman movie, but other than that, nothing special. No. Yeah, they keep doing them, but I don't know anyone who's actually seen one. Ah. Uh, um. And then on the second uh, of November, we saw the tenth uh, anniversary of James Bond 007 Bloodstone. This was the twenty fourth James Bond game and features an original story. It was the last game made by Bizarre Creations before they closed in two thousand eleven. Uh, do you reckon that game will be on D-listed? Um, no, it's probably still available on Steam or somewhere, but, um, no, D-listed is mostly for when the multiplayer server shuts down or it gets taken off Steam. Ah. Uh, or Epic or whatever store you use these days. <laughs> Interestingly, they say that the Bloodstone was designed to capture the feel of a blockbuster movie with a mix of characterization and adrenaline. And it has the vo- and it has the uh, voice and likeness of Daniel Craig, Judy Dench, and Joss Stone. Huh. Um, on the same day um, was the 19th anniversary of Monsters Incorporated, a Pixar classic about monsters who believe hu- human children are toxic by risk their lives to extract energy for their from their screams. 
It was a breakthrough in fur and cloth, rend- and cloth rendering. Yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, going back and looking at it, the um, the fur on Sully is really impressive. I reckon to the, I reckon around uh, two thousand onwards, the, those were the years where animation took took off, like really took off. Yeah, it's um like. I think you've got to keep in mind the difference between real-time and pre-rendered animation. So once the sync is pre-rendered and can, um, they can take advantage of you know spending three days on a particular frame, I think that's a number I've heard thrown around for maybe um, the first Toy Story. Yeah. But um, you, know, you can spend however long you want on a frame and make it look as absolutely perfect as you want. But with uh, a video game, you're doing it real-time. You're doing it you know, 60 times a second. And I think um, one of the big issues with a- animation in games is that you can't, you know, you have to do it real time. So there's a lot of pushing for efficiency and uh, nice tricks that they put in. But, um, and a game will never look as good as a real, as a pre-rendered animation can when done correctly. But since 2000, there has been a big increase in the quality of both forms. Mm. So uh, on to our remembrances. Uh, Thomas Midgley Jr., creator of Leaded Fuel and CFCs died at 55 on, on the 2nd of, no- 2nd of November, 1944. In an accident involving another, inven- another of his inventions, a system of ropes and pulleys to help him move after he was disabled from poliomyelitis. Leaded Fuel and CFCs are not now known to have high environmental impact, although CFCs have less obvious impact than previous refrigerants. Thomas received over 100 patents in his life. Man, that's a very tragic way to go, hey? Yeah, it's unfortunate because, you know, 100 patents, uh, patents, and the things he did were, you know, it only came out after years that they were actually bad. It wasn't until people realized, you know, the lead in the fuel is getting into the atmosphere and affecting people. The, uh, in fact, there's a correlation between the year that there was a big effort to reduce the amount of lead in fuel and uh, other places and crime rates. Oh, yeah, I heard about that one too, yeah. Yeah, so uh, theoretically, the I mean, it's a correlation. I don't know if anyone's actually proven the causation. Theoretically, lower lead contamination is better for you. I mean, <laughs> oh, that's a dumb <laughs> statement. Lower lead contamination is obviously better for you, but lower lead contamination also leads to lower crime rates is what I was trying to say. <laughs> oh, I had a bit of a blonde moment. <laughs> oh, it sounds like the dementia has gotten to you, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and then I, I like how um, Midge, Midgley was trying to prove the uh, to um, prove the safety um, the safety of one of the um, one of his inventions. He uh, he participated in a press conference where he poured one of the inventions on the, onto his hands and placed a bottle of, of the chemical under his nose and inhaled its vapor for sixty seconds, declaring that he could use this every day without succumbing to any problems. Yeah, there were a couple of cases of people who deliberately expose themselves to chemicals to prove that they're not dangerous and <laughs> it not going exactly like they planned. <laughs> Although the funny thing was, uh, so um, so however the saved New Jersey ordered the Bayway plant to be closed a few days later and Jersey Standard was forbidden to manufacture um, this product again without state permission, Midgley would later have to take an absence of leave from work after being diagnosed with lead poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, damn, what were you thinking? Um, so on this day in 1950, George Bernard Shaw passes away at the age of 94. Known as Bernard Shaw, he wrote over 60 plays and many novels. Although he promoted eugenics as well and was an early anti-vaxxer, his drama is regarded as second only to Shakespeare. You know any um, good Bernard Shaw's um, works? Uh, I can't say I've actually read any of it, which, considering I'm a huge fan of reading, is probably not a good sign. But um, no, I can't say I do know any of his work. Do you? Uh, I do know, uh, know a couple of quotes here and there, but uh, he was a pretty deep man. Do you know any quotes off the top of your head that you'd like to share? Uh, 
I'm looking at one of his actually, actually I'm looking at one of his quotes right now, which is really good. Um, there is only one religion, though there are hundreds of there are a hundred versions of it. Well, you know, there's at least three versions of uh, the Abrahamic religion. And then, uh, what's more the, if uh, you count all of the various uh, schisms in each each side? Yeah, let's see. And then the other quote: "The worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them." but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. Oh, you might, here's another one um, just, to, to, just to top it off. To understand a saint, you must hear the devil's advocate, and the same is true of the artist. I mean, he was, he, he's a pretty, um, pretty well-versed man. Yeah. And in uh, 2002, Charles Sheffield died from brain cancer on the 2nd of November at the age of 67. He published a novel, The uh, Web Between Worlds, at almost the same time as Clark's The Fountain of Paradise. Both novels feature the creation of space elevators. Sheffield was chief scientist of the Earth Satellite Corporation creating technical papers and non-fiction books featuring images of Earth from space. Charles was also the president of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and the American Astronomical Society. That must be awesome with the whole space elevators concept. Yeah, that's an odd coincidence. There's a few cases like that. Would you reckon it's possible, though, with the whole space elevator? I know Japan have been trying to do a whole space elevator. Uh, Not without some exotic materials that just aren't physically capable of creating at the moment. Although whenever I think of space elevators... I always think of uh, the 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 um, Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, where they had the uh, space elevator, where they had the space elevator and they're going through like, oh, you're you're now passing Earth number two. Uh, is that in the movie? Yeah, that was in the movie. Yeah. yeah. So uh, onto our famous birthdays, and on the second of November, eighteen ninety four, Alex Lipisch was born. Alex was a German aeronautical engineer who pioneered tailless aircraft, delta wings, and ground effect. His most famous designs are the ME-163 rocket interceptor and the Dornier aerodyne. After the First World War, he worked with the Zeppelin company, which began his research into tailless flight. In 1929, his tail first NT became the first rocket-powered aircraft. In 1985, he was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. He was born in Munich. On the same day in 1929, Amar Bose was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was a professor at MIT for over 45 years. He was motivated to find his speaker research company after he bought a high-end system with disappointing performance. Bose focused on psychoacoustics, and uh, he also uh, was awarded successful patents in uh, two fields that continue to be important in, in his company, which is the Bose Corporation. And these patents were in the area of loudspeaker design and nonlinear two-state modulated Class D power processing. And he also developed an electromagnetic replacement for automotive shock absorbers intended to radically improve the performance of automotive suspension systems, absorbing bumps and road shocks, which controlling car body motions and sway. And I like his quote that the best ideas usually come in come to him in a flash. That these innovations are not a result of rational thought, but it was an intuitive idea. Yeah, he's lucky that that all came to him in a flash. <laughs> I mean, mostly when people flash me, I'm pretty disgusted. But <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> no, that's a that's a mental image I need. I I, I cannot get rid of now. No. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> on the, and then on the, uh, on the same day in 1929, Richard E. Taylor was born. He was the Canadian physicist and Stanford University professor who shared the 1990 Nobel Prize in Physics with Jerome Friedman and Henry Kendall for their pioneering investigation con- concerning deep inelastic scattering of electrons on protons and bound neutrons which have been the essential importance for the development of the quark model in the particle physics. So uh, he did some experiments at SLAC-MIT, uh, which showed that the higher energy electrons could be scattered through mu- much higher angles with the loss of some energy. These deep inelastic scattering results provided the first experimental evidence that protons and neutrons are made of point-like particles later identified to be up-down quarks that have uh, previously been proposed on theoretical grounds. 
So these experiments also provided the first evidence of the existence of gluons. He was born in Medicine Hat, Alberta. Alberta. That's a cool town name. And uh, now to our events of interest. On the 2nd of November 1932, the Emu War begins. Or well, began, actually, to be too precise. Begun so the, the Emu War has. <laughs> no, I won't try to do uh, try to do Yoda again. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Australian military armed with Lewis guns deployed in Western Australia to cull the Emu population. The Emus mo- managed to... Mo- mostly avoid the troops and proved difficult to kill. It leads to jokes about Australia losing a war against birds, although Major Meredith noted that there was no human casualties. Okay, Meredith compared them to Zulus. So he said, <laughs> yeah, if we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capability, no, sorry, capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus when even dum dum bullets, whom even dum dum bullets could not stop. <laughs> oh, man. But there were no human casualties, which is good, I guess. <laughs> How much rounds of ammo did they get, though? Like 10,000 rounds of ammo? Yeah, and um, one of the estimates is that it cost them about 10 rounds per bird. <laughs> wow, they were invincible. <laughs> yeah, and. Um, the army noted that it seemed like the birds were learning and responding and they would have one bird keeping watch for the army. And then when the army turned up, the bird would warn them all to get the hell out. <laughs> well, they're not as dumb as like, what, horses, for example? <laughs> yeah, they're smart birds. <laughs> On the uh, 2nd of November 1947 in California, designer Howard Hughes performs the maiden and only flight of Hughes H-4 Hercules, also known as the Spruce Goose, the largest fixed-wing aircraft ever built. Well, not quite. Not quite? It's the largest wooden fixed-wing aircraft ever built. The only aircraft to come pretty close to the size uh, is the Maria, the Antonov A-20... Sorry, Antonov AN-225 Maria, which is uh, the... The largest currently flying aircraft, even though there's only like one of them in actual service. Uh, The other, I think, was never finished. But I was looking into this, and so the Maria basically matches the size. Uh, There's some slight difference in wingspan and length, but it's pretty close. And the only aircraft to be bigger is the Strato launcher. Okay. So the Maria was... um, Have you ever seen those photos of the space shuttle on the back of the 747 yeah 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 the maria was built specifically for that purpose with the russian buran which was a a space shuttle knockoff and uh so they built the the maria and these days they use it for extremely heavy lift operations you can hire one to ship things for you if you want but um yeah you can see the uh the comparison sheet actually i'll pull one up uh, from wikipedia the only thing bigger is strato launcher built for uh yeah built for carrying a rocket up to the upper atmosphere wow it's a big boy <laughs> uh, yeah i'm impressed that they even came close to building the spruce goose in this um you know back then so let's see the um yeah the the maria is quite a bit longer but uh quite a bit skinnier than the the spruce goose the spruce goose has a much bigger wingspan mm. the spruce goose also has a bigger tail than the maria yeah. which also apparently yeah just about matches the tail of the a380 so you know there's a lot of dimensions to compare yeah and it's all and and the cost was insane like 23 million <laughs> in yeah, in nineteen forties money. Yeah. Uh and so on on this day, uh it it was uh launched uh, into Long Beach Harbor and uh on an unannounced test flight, thousands of onlookers came to watch the aircraft taxi on the water and were surprised when Hughes lifted his wooden behemoth seventy feet above the water and flew for a mile before landing. Yeah, it's actually the um the climatic moment of uh of uh what's the movie called? The Aviator? Oh, yeah. Which is a movie about Howard Hughes. Okay. Whenever I think of the... Now when I think of the Spru- uh, Spruce Goose, I always think of um, the Mr. Burns uh, Spruce Moose. 
<laughs> yeah, Mr. Burns is definitely inspired by uh, by Howard Hughes. <laughs> that whole eccentric billionaire thing. Yep. <laughs> would you if they if they ever rebuilt this Bruce this Bruce Goose? Would you ever ride in it? Uh, maybe. I mean, it only really flew. Um, you know, it says it flew seventy feet above water for a mile, which isn't great. Maybe they could, um, if they wanted to rebuild it. Maybe uh, it wouldn't fly high. It would be a ground effect aircraft, something like the uh, Caspian Sea Monster. So there are aircraft that are built to fly just above the waves, and the theory is that you can get much higher, uh, much higher sort of weight limits by flying just above the, the water than you can by flying on your wings alone mm-hmm. because of ground effect. I mean, it would be a hell of an experience, though, yeah. getting to ride in the spruce moose. You mean spruce goose? Yeah. <laughs> How did I mess that up? <laughs> it, it was, it's, uh, oh, come on, the Simpsons. It's the Simpsons. Come on. It's the Simpsons. You're messing with me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh. Um, so anyways, um, on the 2nd of November, 1988, the Morris Worm, the first internet distributed computer worm to gain significant mainstream media attention, is launched from MIT. So uh, the Morris Worm, or Internet Worm of November 2nd, 1988, was one of the first computer worms distributed via the internet and the first to gain media, media mainstream attention. It resulted in the first felony conviction in the U- in the U.S. under the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It was written by a graduate student at Cornell University, Robert Tappan Morris, and launched on November 2nd from a computer systems of the MI- of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The worm was created by Tappan simply to see if it could be done. <laughs> yeah, the great geek um, thing. Just do it to see if you can, and yeah, and actually, just uh, going back to the uh, Caspian Sea Monster, which I mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, uh, I've just found out they're just scooped it up and they're going to move it. So it's been sitting on um on a beach for decades since the Soviet <laughs> Union collapsed. No way. Yeah, and they've just scooped it up and they're going to move it and you know restore it. <laughs> probably for um probably for a museum piece, but oh well, it'd be yeah. fun if they fly that thing again. <laughs> I doubt they will. It's a wonderful plane, but it is you know it's going to go to a, yeah, it's going for a museum piece, and it's been sitting there for thirty years and hasn't been touched. So I wouldn't trust it not to fall apart as soon as you start the engines. That's fair. That's fair. But uh, with the with the Morris worm, it's yeah. uh. It's worked by exploiting known vulnerabilities in Unix SendMail Finger and um, RSH slash REXEC, as well R-exec. as weak, thank you, as well as a weak passwords. A supposed unintended consequence of the code, however, caused it to be more damaging. A computer could be infected multiple times, and each additional process would slow the machine down, eventually to the point of being unusable. And the cost of this damage? Hundred thousand to ten million dollars worth. Yeah, it's um, you know, that's a big range. <laughs> this was referred to as the Great Worm because of the devastating effect it has on the internet at the time, both in overall system downtime and in psychological impact on the perception of security and reliability of the internet. Yeah, it was you know the first major worm attack. It's um. Mentioned at the end of uh, of Cuckoo's Nest, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny because RTM is now he's well he's still big in uh, in computer software and computer science, but man, it must be incredible having possibly ten million dollars of damage to your name. Wasn't there a computer a while back that had like worms and it was being auctioned off at one point? Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, I mean, can can you imagine really? Uh, that's the other thing I was want. I always wondered though, like after this worm, like there were there hasn't been much worms that come that have come and gone, have there? That done uh, as much. No, there's been tons. Yeah, but they haven't done much damage as the Morrison worm has. Uh, where were you when WannaCry happened? Under a rock. I don't know what that yeah. is. And there's been some really bad worm attacks in the past um, past decade. And uh, like, finally... We're not just talking a worm that will 
stop your computer running by overloading it. We're talking about a worm that will completely wreck your computer and make it impossible to use because it's being corrupted. Well, encrypted. Fair. Oh, yeah, this one, the one I cry. Oh, I yeah. remember this worm. <laughs> it's not the only example of, uh, of CryptoLocker malware, but it's one of the most famous. All created because the NSA doesn't tell Microsoft when it finds a bug. Hmm, I wonder what could happen if you create your own software to break into computers and then leave it on a computer that gets broken into. <laughs> oh, man. They were not- yeah. So much for, so much for uh, security, huh? Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, on the uh, 2nd of November 2016, Real Live premiered in Italy. And this was played for audiences in attendance of Trieste Science, Science Plus Fiction Festival. And here's the plot. Mark is diagnosed with a disease and is given one, one year to, left to live. Unable to accept his own end, he decided to freeze his own body. 60 years later, in the, in the year 20. 2084, he becomes the first man to be revived in history. It is then he discovers that the love of his life, Naomi, has accompanied him this entire time in a way that he never expected. The film shares common points with Open Your Eyes and its American remake, Vanilla Sky, which was written by Matteo Gill. Here he revisits themes of love, loss, and death within the frame of cryogenic sci-fi story. It just reminds me of that Futurama episode. (laughs) <laughs> where Fry and his girlfriend freeze themselves for a thousand years, uh, and they end bit- up in the uh, the Mad Max thing. <laughs> Except it turns out to be a movie set. <laughs> this one also reminds me of uh, South Park when uh, Cartman this c- couldn't wait to get uh, couldn't wait to get the um, Nintendo Wii decides to freeze himself, and he uh, goes and then he w- freezes himself way forward in time to the point where. It's just atheism uh, fighting against each other because of ne- because of a choice of name. Yeah, I think I um, remember hearing about that. But yeah, um, that's all we have time for uh, this week. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can find us on that'snotcanon.com where we have an archive of our old episodes. And um, we can also find new podcasts new podcasts such as the between the butcher and the block boy these names are cu- these, these names are getting more and more weirder well so, there's uh, only one excuse to uh no, no excuse to go and make things even weirder <laughs> so uh this podcast is their latest collaboration is a big idea is a big idea from ordinary people and it harkens back to a time where philosophy politics and metaphysics were not the sole purview of educated elites and brings together guests with common core belief but different backgrounds. So it talks mostly about uh, philosophy and crime. You can also find us on um, Pod Hero. Yep, on Pod Hero for $5 a month, you can support us and other That's Not Canon podcasts. Your subscription is split between the podcasts that you listen to. Well, uh, that's all we have for this week. Take care of yourselves, stay hydrated, and uh, we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.